I'm Kate Daniels. This many months into life during the pandemic, it's time to be paying close attention to our kids and the things going on with them. To help us be more informed and aware, we have Jack Schreiner with us from PacMed Pacific Medical Centers, where he is the lead psychotherapist. Jack is also a social worker with a strong interest in helping kids navigate life and get a good footing. So let's meet Jack for this information. Jack Schreiner, good morning. It's great to welcome you back once again. Well, it's good to be back. Thanks, Kate. And so we had a conversation a couple of months or so ago where we focused on mental health issues during this really, shall we call it, interesting time of the COVID pandemic. And uh, here we are once again because uh, the stresses of this, if anything, perhaps are intensifying. So I'm really grateful to have you here to give some really important insights and particularly in terms of youth, because I think that uh, this is perhaps something that impacts them maybe a little more so in a way. Would you think so? Yeah, I'd say um, that's probably the right idea. Yeah, because, um, you know, generally speaking, our young people are more vulnerable in a way to any kind of um, big challenges in our lives more so than grownups, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think I could get behind that. So you do a lot of work, I think, with youth in your work at Pacific Medical Centers. So uh, actually give us a little overview of who you are in terms of the work that you do. Sure, yeah. So um, my name is Jack Schreiner, as you said. I am a mental health therapist and a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been working at Pacific Medical Centers at the Beacon Hill Clinic for about eight years now. Started in 2012, and um, let's see. I, um, you know, I, I basically work with um, all kinds of folks who come into the clinic, and um, uh, a, a wide range of ages uh, that come in as well. Um, I think the youngest, I, youngest patient I worked with was maybe five uh, a while back, and um, I've definitely worked with folks who are in their 80s, even early 90s. Um, so a wide range of age and um, lots of different con- uh, conditions, you know, but uh, generally speaking, um, people that, that come in to um, seek out services with uh, the mental health team um, are, folks, are, are dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, you know, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a pretty um, big um, issue uh, for folks. And um, there are lots of different kind of subcategories especially under the anxiety umbrella, but generally speaking, yeah, depression and anxiety is what I work with. So depression and anxiety have been the conditions over the last eight years when you've been working with with your clients, with the patients, and so I would think that those two things, anxiety and depression, could be more manifest during this time, this COVID time. Yeah, I mean, I guess the jury's still out a little bit on whether we're going to see through, like, you know, robust data, whether, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has really caused a, a big uptick in mental health problems and depression and anxiety. You know, there was just a New York Times article that came out a, a few days ago that was saying, hey, let's not jump to conclusions and, and think that, you know, this is going to, this is creating a tsunami effect of uh, an increase in mental health problems. But certainly, so far, we have heard anecdotal evidence um, that 
mental health services are just hearing from more and more patients, you know, that people are really struggling with the pandemic, for sure, especially the shelter-in-place kind of lifestyle that we've all had to deal with at this point. Yes, that is a challenge Mm -hmm. without question, because I would say that the majority of us are really more social, quote, animals, that we really want to be with people, right? That's right. Yeah, no, we are social beings. That's that's to be sure. Even even folks who would identify as introverts, right, or, or who you know don't have many friends uh, and you know spend a lot of their free time maybe um, alone, I think it's pretty safe to say that most people need some sort of connection with other people, right? And certainly for children, there's a learning component to staying connected to other people. It's it's a big part of how children learn and develop. And I think I've heard this from my nieces and nephews who are having to stay at home to do schooling, that they really miss their friends. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's that social thing. That's right. And obviously, as um, with older children, you know, they can be pretty tech-savvy. And so I certainly have uh, patients that I work with who are, you know, in their teens who, even before the pandemic, were doing a lot of smartphone-based socializing. And as, as well as through video games. But, you know, so that, that continues, I think, for teenagers. And so you could, at first glance, you could say, oh, well, they're, they're socializing just as much as before. But I think what some of those sort of tech-heavy teens are finding during the pandemic is that that stuff gets stale after a while. And um, they're still craving the one-on-one sort of in-person interaction, right? So even though they can still use their phones to text and to do video calls, it's kind of losing its luster a little bit, I think, during the pandemic for people. Right. And probably they're just really anxious for things to be opening up a bit, as we hear. And I guess what we'll have to really impress upon them is the importance, the necessity of wearing a mask. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I just heard the the news in Washington State that they're going to make that, that we're going to all have to start wearing masks in public no matter what. So this will be not a in- suggestion anymore. It's not a strong <laughs> suggestion anymore. It's going to be like required. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe mm-hmm. the idea of being able to get together with friends, having to wear a mask uh, along with that, will be kind of incidental because they'll be so excited to be with friends again. <laughs> we'll see. I, yes. I hope so. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're here really to be talking about our youth and mental health issues. What are some of the more common kinds of issues that you find with kids? Sure. So, um, you know, I I had a look kind of in preparation for this conversation. I was just looking at the CDC website. They have um, uh, a page on uh, mental health problems in children. And first of all, um, you know, one statistic there, it was saying that um, for children between the ages of two and eight, one in six children have a mental health uh, issue or developmental issue. Um, So it's pretty significant. And um, they uh, mentioned as well that uh, sort of the top child mental health issues are anxiety, behavior problems, depression, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Those are the main ones. And I think we've probably heard, especially with ADHD, that that's somewhat common in in classrooms. So that isn't necessarily... Uh, a surprise, but the anxiety, did, did it expound on, or is, do you have the experience of thinking of 
young kids and what the anxiety is? Oh, what the anxieties are about. That's a good question. I mean, you know, uh, to put it really, really in a basic way, it's like um, it's a problem with fear, right? It's, it's being afraid of things. So I did want to mention, too, that um, there is a thing about um, what is most common across different age ranges for young people. And um, for younger kids, you know, between the ages of like <laughs> zero and 11 or so, um, there's mental health problems manifest more in uh, behavior problems. So seeing behaviors that are disruptive or uh, being oppositional or like tantrums that, that are really intense, things like that, difficulties with uh, school. And then as children get older, mental health problems manifest more and more through anxiety and depression. But to go back to your question about what do kids typically get anxious about or um, what are the fears about? Yeah, it's any number of things that uh, a child has to deal with in their lives. Because um, if you think about it, mental health problems are really like, you could say that, you know, everybody has the capacity for feeling afraid. And so if, if, if you develop a disorder or a problem with it, you're just experiencing it um, more intensely than the average person. So a person could really develop anxiety about kind of anything in their lives, any sort of pressure they're feeling, any sort of place where they're feeling judged or you know, a pattern where they can't kind of uh, kick feeling ashamed of something, um, anything like that. Or uh, it could go from that to something uh, where they're, you know, really afraid for their safety or their lives. Um, mm. And so, you know, I want to throw in there, too, that some children have anxieties and even post-traumatic stress after going through, uh, after surviving an abusive experience or uh, surviving bullying, things like that. And boy, that really makes a lot of sense because we do know that abuse of varying kinds is occurring uh, for children, right. whether at home or in a school situation. So that's right. yes, that, that certainly makes sense. So these this is something um, that when it manifests in behavior problems, would uh, a teacher or ideally the parent or, or maybe the parent is incapable of really reacting to this, but really this should sure. be uh, help that is sought, medical help that's sought, right? Oh, correct. Yeah. So, um you know, if, if we just continue uh, talking about um, abuse and post-traumatic stress responses uh, a little bit longer, right? In the case of that, you know, that, that could manifest, right? And, you know, how, how could a child start showing that they have post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, you know, sometimes that just shows up as a child just kind of, you know, they just not really showing much interest in their lives any longer. So not showing much interest in, in school and, you know, they're, they're in class and they're just sort of, um, checked out, um, they're in their head, um, at home, they might not be eating as much or their sleep changes a bunch or they lose or gain a bunch of weight that they didn't plan, uh, plan to, uh, things like that, big changes like that. You know, a, a teacher or a caregiver might say, Hmm, I wonder, I wonder if something's on this here, um, internally for this child. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it takes is uh, because, um, Oftentimes, uh, one, of, one of the hallmarks of uh, post-traumatic stress and, and, and uh, surviving abuse is a feeling of shame. And so there, there can be a lot of secrecy on the part of that child, not wanting to share, not wanting to disclose what, what happened to them. And so it does help to have um, an adult in their lives who's kind of noticing that something's different, something changed, right? So sometimes if 
if, if the caregiver isn't able to identify that, it, it can help for teachers to, to kind of notice that too. Yeah. And maybe that's the case, too. Sometimes when I use the analogy of, say, the fish in water, it's really hard to tell when we're right there with this child. But a teacher who's only seen them, you know, these few hours every day might begin to notice that pattern. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I've I've ended up working with uh, a child, uh, maybe a teenager, where, you know, they survived some abuse experience and it was, and by the way, Abusers typically are people that know the child uh, rather than a stranger. Overwhelmingly, more than half of those situations, it's somebody who knows the child. You know, I've, I've certainly worked with teenagers, let's say, where they've been hiding what happened to them for years and years and years. So there's that, too. It's not always necessarily, you know, a week after it happens, suddenly everything changes. So sometimes children really go underground with, uh, with what they're struggling with. Because yeah. they're really good at handling things. They're... You know, that just is how intelligent they are. They, maybe it's the shame. Adaptable, sure. Right? Ad- yes, yeah. exactly. But it, what's important to realize is that it it's something that's been festering and it will manifest in those teen years. And to be on yeah. the lookout for that, which might demonstrate itself how, Jack? Oh, sure. Well, th- that's one of the tricky parts of this, right, is that sometimes parents will come in and They'll say, all I can say is, uh, you know, ever since my child um, transitioned from middle school or high school, they're just not the same. And they have like a, you know, 10-mile stare and they just don't seem in their bodies anymore. And they seem kind of disconnected from everything. And I don't know what the heck it is. Are they depressed? Are they, you know, it, uh, the parent doesn't always kind of know what it is. And um, my job, um, if, if that caregiver can refer the, the young person to therapy, sometimes my job is really just to listen with open ears uh, as best I can to kind of create a space where they can open up about what it is that uh, has led them to feel this way. And um, but sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes it's really a mystery is what I'm trying to say, right? You, you know, because that far away there could be, oh, I just had a hard week last week, right? <laughs> I, or I'm feeling uh, discouraged about my future or something versus, oh, I've, I've, I've survived, you know, a traumatic experience. So um, there's, it's kind of like solving a puzzle sometimes uh, as a therapist. Um, and so sometimes maybe it is that, that, you know, it's it's um, not really anything. You know, they just had a tough week. Uh, would you say parents need to then just really be kind of, observing over a period of time to see whether this is something that is persistent. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, and then, yeah, when you get down to the the definitions of mental disorders, um, uh, you know, most of them they'll say, you know, when they're, when they're talking about symptoms that meet the criteria for a certain mental disorder, most of them will say, Hey, you know, um, you've observed this problem in this child for, you know, a month or more something like that. So you're right. I mean, it's, 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 it's probably jumping to conclusions too quickly. If um, you don't know what's happening with the child, all you're noticing is some change in their functioning. And it's only been like a week, you know, it's probably jumping to the conclusions too quickly to immediately say, oh, this person has a, you know, a clinical problem. But um, yeah, certainly over the course of a month or, or more, um, mm-hmm. if, if you just, it just if something just doesn't seem right and things really seem to have changed for that young person, then yeah, I think 
that's the time to reach out to professional help. And um, when in doubt, just make the call. You know, I, I do want to um, hit that home because sometimes parents will be, you know, um, really on the fence saying, oh, you know, like, is this the wrong thing to do? Am I, you know, maybe I'm making too big a deal out of things. And, you know, it's like it's enough of a reason to come in and refer a child, even if you just don't feel right about how they're doing. Because even there, even if the parent is really getting things wrong, there's still an issue there that you can work on, right? There's And the issue in that case would be like some sort of disconnect between <laughs> the parent's observations about the child and the child's internal experience. There's still something to work on there, uh, like what led to that disconnect, right? Yes, yeah. right. Well, you had mentioned earlier how with children ages two to eight, one in six yeah. have some sort of a mental health issue, which mm-hmm. I think is just huge that the number is yeah. that high. Um, yeah. What about in older Mental kids? Behavioral or developmental disorders, what the CDC says on that. Yeah. yeah. Go, go ahead, sorry. So what about kids older than that, uh, preteens and teenagers? Yeah. You know, in the quick research I tried to do to prep for this call, I didn't actually see anything specifically, a statistic like that that's referring to children older. Okay. I did see a more general statistic from the National Mental Health Association that said that about one in five young people, so I'm not sure how they're defining young people, deal with mental health problems at any given time. And when they say any given time, I'm not sure if they mean, oh, you know, for a couple months here and then it stops and then another, you know. <laughs> so that, that's a pretty general statistic, but I, I think it does hit home that it's a big issue in this country, a big issue for, for children. So, you know, whether we look at the first number that you gave or one in five, you know, we're dealing like with about 20%, which again is really a a big number. It is, yeah, it sure is. And again, that's not to say that it's going to stay the same for that one child, you know, their entire childhood. Um, But but at any given time, that's going to be the case. And that is, those are pretty high numbers, yeah. And so it, it leads me to think, well, it won't be the same child and it won't be particularly if the issue is addressed early on. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if a parent then, here we have Pacific Medical Centers, and there's Mm -hmm. many locations throughout the Puget Sound, so readily accessible, uh, parents can call up, make an appointment. What would they expect to happen uh, in such an appointment? And, you know, it might be multiple appointments, actually. That's right. Yeah. So, so first of all, I just want to say that generally speaking, and and you know, it's it's good to talk about this with you and have your listeners uh, hear this because there, there tends to be, I think, a lot of mystery still in in the public uh, discourse about you know what the heck happens when you go to therapy. You know, what should I expect? Um, there's this mysteriousness about it. I think. Um, first of all, you know, some some people come in kind of thinking, oh. Um, I'll, I'll maybe come in one or two times and, you know, good to go. You know, the, the therapist will just give me some advice and, you know, tell me the top five things to do differently and then I'll, you know, I'll be good to go. And, and it's, it's important to understand it's really not like that. It's not, it's not the same as like a, like a surgery where, you know, you've just got an easily diagnosable broken arm and, you know, we're going to go in and, 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 and fix it and reset it or whatever. Um, this is more like um, training like at a gym. <laughs> so it's more like going and developing a routine where you are gradually over time cultivating a new relationship with your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. And then the therapist acts kind of as a facilitator for that. So 
for people of all ages, it's important to understand that therapy really usually involves meeting with your therapist about once a week for months. And, um, you know, depending on the condition, sometimes um, if, if the condition is, is really has taken hold of somebody's uh, thought, feeling, and, and behavior patterns, it can take years. But it doesn't always have to. And so um, when you're referring a child for therapy, you, you should at least expect, you know, weekly or an appointment every two weeks, and then that's going to go for at least a few months. And are parents ever involved, or the caregivers, involved in any of these meetings and these appointments? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked. No, that, that's, you know, parents and caregivers are, are really a really important part of the child's life and the child's learning, and obviously, especially um, the younger the child is. And so I wanted to say that, so for, for younger children ages, you know, 0 to 10 or 11, let's say, um, uh, speaking for myself, you know, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time with the parent. I personally, you know, different therapists have different styles on this. Personally, I tend to like to kind of meet with children alone and parents alone because I feel like it can help to um, create an environment where if anyone feels a sense of shame or a sense of like, um, you know, not wanting to offend the other party's feelings that you can kind of speak openly about what your concerns are. Um, but yeah, I'll meet with parents quite a bit when I'm working with children, um, just, you know, kind of separately. And it's not like I'm spilling the beans about every, you know, juicy detail that the child shares with me privately. Um, but what I am doing is I'm giving the parent my impression of what I think the child is struggling with, the big themes that I think the child is struggling with based off of my work with the child. And then I'm basically coaching the parents on how to respond maybe more robustly and in a more targeted manner to what I see the child dealing with. So, yeah. And for much younger children, you know, uh, there's even infant mental health specialists, right? Uh, that kind of work, you know, because the child is so young and not even really verbal yet, it's basically just working with the parents on how they're engaging with that child and the relationship there. So when you're saying that, are we thinking of a child who is more on the spectrum because you're saying they might not be verbal or they're too young to be verbal yet? Oh, well, I'm just pointing out that, you know, there are therapists who even work with parents on problems that the parent is having with, you know, like a six-month-old or something, right? Oh. There's infant mental health therapists out there. So I'm just kind of speaking to how wide of a range there is on what the experience can be in therapy. And one other thing I want to say too, Kate, is that, you know, um, because therapy is all about helping the patient um, cultivate a, a new, closer relationship with their own thoughts, feelings, and actions, obviously the classic way of doing that is to have conversations about those issues with the patient. And, you know, the younger the child is, the harder it is just to sit down with them and say, hey, let's talk about your problems. Right. <laughs> because you've got to develop some trust, and the child doesn't always have the, uh, the kind of verbal skills um, to be able to put words to what they're struggling with. And so, you know, we have to use kind of different ways of engaging with the child through different activities that are meant to kind of build trust. Um, and there are even therapists who kind of use very targeted techniques through um, playing with, with toys with children to kind of help the child bring up the issues they're struggling with. Whereas uh, for, for teenagers, let's say, you know, it's, it's usually me having more of an interaction that's like with an adult where we are just talking about their issues. Right. 
Yeah. So, so that, that's good to be aware of, that there is obviously kind of the spectrum of ways yeah. that you're you're dealing with uh, age-appropriate, I guess, um, with, right. with the patient. And and then, uh, you know, mentioned meeting with the parents or the caregiver. Uh, that would be one way parents support. What other things would parents do to, to really be involved and supportive of their child? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, one of the one of one of the um, things that's really great about my job is that I get to really address those issues on a very individual level and really kind of learn about that particular child and kind of give advice uh, um, that's targeted for that child's particular issues. And so, there are some limitations to speaking really generally about what parents can do um, to help children with mental health problems. But I would just say, um, overall. It's, it's just so important to really be paying attention as best you can to um, to what they're struggling with, and um, I think that's a particularly tough time to be uh, to be trying to do that these days because of uh, the pandemic, right? I mean, parents are uh, especially distracted, maybe working from home, and you know, um, school is, is is not in session, and you know, children are just home all day and um, and so everybody's kind of in each other's hair, and uh, that's probably especially hard to be doing these days for some parents to say, okay, now you know, be really conscientious of how your child is doing, and you know, um, uh, be really tuned in to their mental health and to their emotions. And uh, you know, some parents are just kind of over it at this point. Oh, you know, <laughs> I need my child to get back to school. You know, they're in my hair all the time. Yes. Um, but it's still really important, and you know, some of that can just mean. Um, do what you can to share things with your child. So do what you can to, um, you know, for example, if you're making dinner, bring the child in and, and, and invite them to do it with you and, and teach them what you're doing and, and kind of um, do a running monologue about, okay, now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that. This is how we make this meal. You know, how do you want to help, you know? Um, and that goes for things the child is doing too. I mean, um, you know, even video games, right? There's something that can be really special about saying, hey, can you teach me about this video game? What do you like about it so much? Can I play this with you? Can you show me how to do it? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes parents miss that. You know, we, we get so busy that sometimes we miss the importance of just sharing and spending time and um, focusing on encouragement, you know, targeting some praise. Like, this is what I really love about how you did that, child. <laughs> That's what can really, like, help a child feel good about themselves and reduce that sense of shame that often accompanies mental health problems. Right. And have be building more of a rapport that perhaps helps to bring an issue to light or helps to begin to dissipate it too, just organically perhaps. That's right. And I want to point out too that, you know, parents are models for their children, Uh, you know, whether they want to be or not, that's just how children learn, right? As children are constantly soaking up what their parents are saying and doing. And so if you can show that you strive to be mindful of your own emotions and thought processes and behaviors, and you can show them that you do that with yourself, you can kind of teach them that that's possible for themselves. And also when it comes to sharing about emotions, if you can go into the uh, relationship with your child showing that, hey, you know, I had a really rough day today and this is how I'm managing my frustration and anger about my boss. 
that's really helpful for a child to see that, that you're open to kind of expressing vulnerability and that, you, that you're open to like kind of making a plan for yourself and that you don't always have everything all put together. Um, that's really valuable. And what you're doing is teaching the child something about how they can manage their own emotions. Oh, that is really great. I, that's, yeah. yeah. And it just builds that bond, too, between parent and mm-hmm. child. And yeah, that's truly wonderful. And just helps any of us kind of navigate life during these really interesting, unusual times, right? Oh, oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. very unusual times we're in right now. So we should mention, though, uh, gosh, time goes by way too quickly, Jack, but um, (laughs) for parents, for caregivers, for teachers who may be noticing some problems, how do uh, they go about reaching you? Oh, sure. So, um, you know, the contact information for PacMed is on our website. Um, uh, That's at pacificmedicalcenters.org. And yeah, the contact information is there. You know, you can give a call to our behavioral health department. Um, but also, it's, it's important to point out that for PacMed, it's really a team approach. And so for folks to access our services, it's important for them to also establish with a primary care doctor to kind of lead the team of caregivers. Because it is such a holistic approach, right? That's right, yeah. But, but obviously, too, um, you know, even if you don't have access to PacMed therapists or psychiatrists, I definitely encourage any listeners out there to just consider reaching out to a mental health provider, um, whoever's available. But yeah, obviously it's good to toot the horn of uh, PacMed too. And uh, <laughs> so yeah, the contact info is on the web. Excellent. Well, mm-hmm. as always, I do appreciate so much the work that you do and the time that you've given to us to help us navigate life and make it make more sense for us. Thank you, Jack Schreiner. Oh, you're very welcome, Kate. Good to talk to you today.